0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by
1: leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, 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 so I'm going to extend some of the, the, the points that, that Rusty raised, but in particular in the context of this structure, which is the cerebral cortex. So, so I, I think most people will be familiar with this large folded structure here at the top is the cerebral cortex, It makes up about three quarters of the volume of the human central nervous system. And and I think most people in this room know functionally how important it is. As I say here, this sort of executive and integrative center of the central nervous system. Um, It's a huge amount of real estate. It does important things. So it's affected by a variety of diseases that that, that have their etiology or their impact at different stages in age, starting from conditions with a very early onset and childhood like autism Um, right through to diseases of later life, like dementia or or stroke and those kind of things. So what what I'm going to talk about today is is how do we start dealing dealing with questions about how do you control the development of the cerebral cortex, particularly in terms of of size, as a sort of very simple concept. And and as I'm sure you've heard in previous CARTA symposia, and and you'll hear this afternoon, um, there's a lot of debate about sort of cognitive capacity, cognitive ability, and its anatomical underpinnings. And you know, is bigger brains make you smarter and so on. But, but there's some degree of agreement around the idea that certainly more neurons give you sort of more processing power at its most basic rate. Complexity is probably very important as well in terms of elements that one can build circuits from and what you do with them. But sort of raw real estate is also, is also quite important. And that um, becomes very obvious when you start looking at, at these sort of three pick. Uh, primate here. We've also got, got, got humans, chimp, and, and rhesus macaque. And, and what we're looking at here is the number of neurons in each cerebral cortex, where you can see that humans has roughly threefold as many compared to, to chimpanzee, even though in terms of actual developmental time. So, you know, everyone, I could ask soldiers how long do humans take to develop. Easy, easy one for us all to answer in nine months. The um, chimp is roughly the same but you still end up with a brain which, which has a cortex with, with, with about a third of, of the number of neurons and then macaque which is shorter in development again but has you know, tenfold fewer, fewer neurons so, so there's a very basic developmental biology question is how do different organisms generate different numbers of neurons within their cerebral cortex and, and, and at what level is it controlled and by understanding that question of control can we start thinking about how you might then evolve these differences between different species and it plugs into the kind of genetics and, and that kind of work that, 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 that you'll be hearing about, about later in the afternoon. So to think about this, you've got to think about developmental biology, which is how do you actually make things in, in, in the cortex in the first place? And, and this is a picture from um, mouse brain where this red thing, this is a slice through the mouse brain. This would be the outside, this would be the inside. And what all these little red blobs are is these are what we would call progenitor cells, but for, for the sake of simplicity, I'll call them cortical stem cells. So these guys aren't neurons. This is before you have any neurons in your brain or in this case, the mouse brain. And this is, is a slice this way through one half of your cerebral cortex. So the skin would be out here, for example, and there's a hole in the center of the brain here. And these guys are, are lined up in a row. And what happens is these cortical stem cells go on, and this is them in black, to generate cortical neurons that are arranged in layers over time. So you, make, you do this inside out development, you make the deep layers, where you make the upper layers and so on. And, that, and, there's a, and this is a, a very stereotype program that plays out in every single mouse in the same way. And in a mouse, it takes about six days to generate all, all of these cells. So that's fine. So you've got one big population of stem cells. There's some very interesting biology about them, how they diversify. But at its heart, these guys make all, all, all of this class of neurons. So when you're thinking about how you build a brain, you've got to think about how they do this. But, but a key concept within this is, is what is the output of each one of those cortical stem cells, And there's a a principle in development here where we talk about a clone. Now, this isn't Dolly the Sheep-type clone. This is a different clone, just to make your life slightly more complicated. Um, It's a very basic idea. What it is, is, is is, in a mind experiment, if you could label one of those red cells on the previous slide with an indelible marker. So every time it divides, its daughter cells inherit the indelible marker and let development play out over time. What you'd end up doing is labeling every single cell it made just passively by, by letting it roll. So that's the idea. So, so, so you label a clone. So if we're doing this in the cortex, we, take, we know what the start to cortical development looks like. We've got these progenitor cells lined up. We call this a, 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 it's an epithelium, basically. And we know what it looks like at the end of development, where you've got these layers of neurons, and we've got little labels that let us tell them apart. The mind experiment and the real experiment is you then label one of these guys with an indelible marker and let time play out. And you do this and you look at thousands and thousands of these. What you find is something very simple. If you do this before you make any neurons, you end up with purple spots that cross all the layers and make all of, all of the cells. And what that tells you is that you've got this fundamental principle where each cortical stem cell will make a clone of cells that populates all of the different neuronal types. And so what that tells you then is that your clone is a sort of atomic unit of building a structure within the nervous system. This is true in the cortex, the example I've given here. It's actually true in, in your spinal cord, your, your eye, and, and, and so on. And what that does is it gives you an idea of thinking about this problem of at, at, at a kind of a comparative development level. How do you make a bigger cortex in, say, a human compared to a macaque or, or, or a chimp? And, and, it, and it's actually very simple. So, so if you think about it in clonal terms, either have more clones... So increase the number of of stem cells before you ever even make the structure. Or actually change what each stem cell does in terms of what the output of its clone is. So make the the sort of production from that clone larger. And it's a way of of ending up with, with, with more neurons An example I've gone on here, this is is mouse, and mice are, are, for want of a better term, relatively simple in this respect, which is they have phases. This is your starting stem cell. It proliferates, and then it has this linear program. It expands itself, then it starts making neurons, during which it depletes itself, because you're eating up stem cells to make neurons, and then they switch to make the supporting, or the second cell type in the nervous system, the astrocyte, which is actually functionally very important. And it's a nice linear program. So, so, so one of the big questions in the field is, is when you start getting to primates, how complicated does this get? Do you just take this simple template and just make more of them and you just, just generate more real estate that way? Or do you diversify this and make it much more complicated? And, and, and how would this work? And if you can understand that, then you can start plugging in the kind of molecular genetics stuff and think, well, how, do, how does this work within all this? Um, the question is how do you study this? Um, Labeling single cortical stem cells in a human might get you in trouble in most jurisdictions at this point. Um, so, 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 so we did something similar to 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 what Rusty spoke about. Where, but in this case, we were very much focused on the cerebral cortex. So we started with human, and we took human embryonic stem cells, or these induced pluripotent stem cells that, 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 that Rusty mentioned. And what we essentially worked out how to do, using principles of developmental biology, is make the cortical, just the cortical, neural stem cell. And they formed these rather pretty rosettes within this. And what we found is that we could put them into the dish, and they would replay this generating the layers of neurons on exactly a time scale that they do in normal development but in, in utero, which was, which was a bit of a surprise. And, they, go, and they, they actually go on and they make these beautifully connected networks. So these are neurons which are firing away happily in these, these, these human neurons. So this was a bit of a surprise to us, that they observed rules, even though they were isolated from the sort of whole embryo. Um, so, we, so, so we then extended this and said, well, what happens if we look at these different species? And so, so this was work done by Tomoki Otani when he was in the lab. And this is actually a collaboration with, with Carol... Marchetto, who, who you heard mentioned by Rusty, um, and actually Eliza Curnow at there's a primate research institute up, up in Seattle. And what essentially we did was work out how to make pure cortex from these cerebral cortexes, from these different species in the lab. And, and this is John Gurdon, by the way, down the bottom for you, as you don't know. Though we don't actually have John's iPS cells. We think there's a market for them, but... A rather dodgy market for them. But anyway, so, so, so this is chimp. And they, these are actually two different species of macaque because we, we, we could get access to them. So, so we could make the cortical stem cells. And we could replay development. And what we found was each species, just as it does in, 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 in sort of in vivo, has a developmental time scale, which it observes in the lab. By which I mean, the green cells here. So, 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 so the bottom of each one of these graphs here is, is time. And the green are those deep layers of neurons, and the red is these, these later born neurons. So every species makes green before red, but what happens is the macaque makes red much sooner than the human does in the chimp. And actually, the human and the chimp look remarkably similar at the resolution that we can look at with these kind of assays. So in fact, the rest of what I'll talk about, we just look at human and macaque, because actually human and chimp look very similar, which is actually kind of reassuring, because you'd want them to look very similar, given what you heard about in terms of of genome similarities. So, 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 so every, every species has a schedule. And I should say the schedule is remarkably similar to what happens in utero. And we extended this to all sorts of other analyses, which I, which I won't go into detail with here, including when do they make neurons, when do they make different classes of neurons, and the kind of electrophysiology you heard about. When do they mature, when do they form, 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 form networks. So, so, so what this provides us now is a platform to start asking the mechanistic questions that I mentioned, which is, well, how does the stem cell that actually generates the neurons within each species behave in terms of making, making a cortex? And what that involved doing is, 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 is an in the lab version of the, the experiment I described, where we label just, just one stem cell in, in a population of tens of thousands and actually watch that over time and then look at lots of individual stem cells. And to do that, we use a trick where we, we take um, um, a virus, which is, is essentially we've, we've sort of damaged, so that this virus can infect a cell, but then it can never get back out again. So it brings the marker with us, the marker then stays. So these are, these are what we call replication-incompetent lentiviruses. This is a rosette made up of each one of these blobs is a stem cell, we label one stem cell. And then we follow this thing dividing over, say, 10 days within the lab, and we can reconstruct the clone. And one of the challenges here is, is as we mentioned, primate development is very long and very slow. So to give you some kind of benchmark, Mice will take over the world, and the reason mice will take over the world is they do all of their development in less than 21 days, and they'll generate litters of, well, you know, those of you who've been unfortunate enough to have your, your, you know, your garage overrun by mice, right? as opposed to humans, and we know how long, how long humans take. So what happens is these, and I mentioned that mice will make the cortical neurons in six days, humans will do it over four, five, six months, and so you get an idea that these clones become enormous, so we have to look at them in blocks of 10 days, so sort of the first 10 days, the second 10 days, and so on. And the first thing we can do is, is start measuring, you know, how, what do they make and how do they make it? And as biologists, we tend to think biology is a mess they're you know, kind of rules but they're a bit dodgy you know, and it's a bit tricky to make sense of it's all about extracting order from chaos and physicists think that we're a bunch of Luddites and that we just can't think straight and um, there are clearly physicists in the audience, I heard some sniggering um, <laughs> the, um, and a colleague and friend of mine in Cambridge who is a physicist uh, uh, called Ben Simons says, actually, you know, you biologists, actually, if you take these complex data sets, there's usually some very important principles underlying them. And I said, right, prove it. And so we did. So he took all these kind of data and he ripped them apart. And, and rather than me boring you for 10 minutes with all those details, I'll give you the punchline, which is what I told him to tell me too, which is that essentially, when we start looking at, so for example, this is how many stem cells are within a clone Over time. And this is in the first ten days, for example, 20 days, grey is the next 10 days, and black is the next 10 days. And you see, actually, in each window of 10 days, humans all look the same. And what's happening over time is within the clone, they're actually expanding the number of stem cells in the clone while making neurons. So they're kind of the whole thing is growing exponentially. Macaques start off looking very like human and then and then they crash. And what that really means is that essentially the macaques stop making neurons much sooner than the human do. And it's a very simple thing. What it means is that the humans make these big, long, extended clones, which allow them to make far more neurons over a much longer period of time. So they'll make more neurons per stem cell. And they do it in kind of clever ways, in, in stuff that I wouldn't get into today. Now, that's all fine, and it's very descriptive. Um, it raises the second question, which is, which is, well, fine, how does this work? Now, there's a very broad distinction we like to make, which is how much of this biology is controlled intrinsically, whatever that means in terms of the mechanism, and how much it is controlled externally, signaling environment. You can boil it down to, you know, the sort of nature, nurture, who do you know, what do you know, but you, you get the basic basic principle. I once heard that one referred to the European versus the American model, but I couldn't work out which one was meant to be slightly not complementary, but anyway. The, um, so in this case, what we can do is we can essentially do transplantation. Now, clearly, you know, I'm not gonna get a license to transplant macaque cells into humans, certainly, um, and probably not the other way around either. But what we can do is we can do transplantation in the lab where we can label up, say, the human stem cell or the macaque stem cell, and then move, say, one in a thousand of those into the other environment. So essentially, you're exposing them to the other species in the environment and asking, now what will they do at, at its simplest? And, and we can then roll them out over time and do all our maths. And essentially, all I'm showing you here is that nothing changes. So I'll give you the punchline, which is the number of neurons a stem cell makes is actually intrinsic to the species. It's got nothing to do with the environment at the resolution of this assay, with all sorts of caveats around it with what what we're measuring. By which we mean if I move macaque into human, macaque doesn't care. It'll still make what it wants to make when it should make it. And similarly with the human, if I move human into macaque, it'll still generate a certain number of cells. So that's quite striking, but it's about, it's about numbers. There's a second reader, which is very important, which I've rather glossed over, which is this what neurons do you make and when do you make them? So this idea of switching from the early-born neurons to, to the late-born neurons I mentioned. And this, this, this was the thing I mentioned. So, so, so we, we make layers, we mentioned this, but also the humans here switch to making these red guys much later than, than, than the macaque do, for example. And we can look at this as well within these, these systems. And again, what we find is that if you look at these pie charts, this pie chart looks similar to, identical to this pie chart. And what we're doing here is putting human into human or human into macaque, or vice versa, macaque into human or macaque into macaque. And essentially, the species don't care. They're going to do what they're going to do. They're sort of like my 11-year-old son, you know, in the sense that it doesn't matter what environment, there's a certain amount of pig-headedness. So, so, so what this means is, and I don't know where they get it from, I blame his mother. Anyway, the, um, so, 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 so what, what we've learned from these kind of studies is that you know, the primates do development slightly differently. And I should say something which I haven't had time to go into today. They also do it differently to small mammals like mice. So this idea that you're early on you're expanding your stem cells while making neurons, that's quite different compared to small mammals. So there's there's sort of a big mammal problem in addition to the primate problem. And this is something which as a field we haven't really grappled with yet. You know, there are such huge differences between the kind of tools we use in the lab and the model organisms we study in the lab, like mice, in terms of our biology and primates, that, that that some of them aren't to do with being primates, they're to do with being large, slowly developing mammals more than anything else. But even within this difference, what we find is that, is that humans then are different to the smaller brain primates. And that essentially, these differences I mentioned are also cell autonomous. And so what, what that then leaves us at, and this, this, is, this is where we are now, is this provides us a platform to ask what are these mechanisms? How, how do we control what a stem cell does and how it does it? And our goal is we can identify what those differences are, what those sort of cell intrinsic controls are. And clearly, yes, we all think about genetics, and there is an element to that, but you know, we have to be quite broad-minded about what the sort of cell intrinsic clocks are. That, that looking at those differences will give us insight into, into evolutionary differences by sort of thinking, thinking backwards. I should say there's another side to this too, which is the mechanism that controls Differences in spe- between species of brain size are also very important in, in two clinical contexts. One is control of brain size developmentally, which has a very strong impact on various intellectual disabilities. Um, the other side is obviously um, different types of brain cancers, because it's the same biology there as well. Um, so I'll just finish there, and just to say, I mentioned this This, this was led by Tomoki Otani, who's, who was in... the in the lab up to recently and is now with McKinsey in Tokyo and, and is carried on by, 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 by two other people within the lab that, that I've mentioned here. And, and, and just to say that none of this work would be possible without Ben, uh, Rusty, and, and Carol. So thank you very much.
2: Okay, the question that we have been interested in over the past 25 or so years is how do brains in evolution get bigger? And to put the question in a bit more specific terms, what underlies the evolutionary increase in the number of neurons that are generated in cortical development. And as you heard from the previous speakers, this reflects the activity of cortical stem and progenitor cells. And the answer, how you get more neurons formed, is simple. All you need is an increased and prolonged proliferation of these cortical stem cells. But the key question is what underlies the differences across species? Why do we have more neurons than say the macaque or the chimp? Let me give you a very brief introduction to these stem cells. What you see here is a developing mouse uh, brain and the neocortex forms from a structure called the dorsolateral telencephalon that is shown here in the box and shown here at greater magnification And what has fascinated me as a cell biologist over the years is that this cortical wall, this developing cortical wall, has polarity. It has an apical side, as you heard from previous speakers, and a basal side. And the process of making neurons is a strict apical to basal process in which progenitors that form the primary germinal layer, the ventricular zone, progenitors that we collectively call apical progenitors, but notably the apical or ventricular radial glia. These progenitors do not make many neurons, but rather generate a secondary class of progenitors that form the secondary layer of the germinal zone called the subventricular zone. We call these collectively basal progenitors, and there are two major types, the basal or outer radial glia and basal intermediate progenitors. And in an important paper from Colette de and colleagues, it was shown that in more highly developed brains, the outer subventricular zone is very characteristic and it is very highly populated by basal radial glial cells. So these are the ones implicated in cortical expansion. And there is actually a cell biological reason why these progenitors have advantages to expand the cortex. The apical progenitors because of their cell biological nature, can divide only at the ventricle, and that's a very limited space. In contrast, the basal progenitors can divide anywhere in the subventricular zone. They, They can thicken the subventricular zone, and this is a huge advantage if one wants to maximize the number of cell divisions. And this is the reason why cortical expansion is linked to basal progenitor abundance and proliferation. So a few years ago, we decided then to embark on a search for human-specific genes that would do two things. Increase basal progenitor generation and also induce or promote basal progenitor proliferation. And when I say we, I talk about an outstanding PhD student in the lab, Marta Florio. What Marta has uh, developed is a cell biological approach to isolate these various, these two major classes of stem cells. This is a cartoon of the developing cortical wall and you can label the apical side with an antibody against a protein called prominent one and the basal side with a membrane dye that diffuses in the plasma membrane called di-I. And with this approach, you get a dual labeling of the apical radial glia and a single labeling of the basal radial glia such that the ARGs would be blue and red and the BRGs in the mouse would only be red. Now the neurons would also be red, but in the mouse you have a transgenic mouse line that, where the neurons are in addition green, and we can sort them away. So we get relatively pure populations. In humans, this is more complicated, and so we focused our attention to those cells that had duplicated the DNA, which turns them into progenitors. So the ARGs are blue plus red, the BRGs are red only, but please note that the BRGs in the G1 phase of the cell cycle, so before they duplicate the DNA, would be recovered in the neuron fraction shown here. And in fact, we know that about 10% um, of the cells in the neuron fraction are these cells. And this will become important, as you will see in a minute. What Mata then did was she isolated these cell populations and determined the transcriptome and... Um, went for those genes that are highly expressed in the stem cells and found a total of about 400 such genes that were highly expressed in the basal and apical radial glia but very low in the neurons. She then eliminated from these roughly 400 genes those which were also expressed in the mouse stem cells which brought the number down to 266. And then of these, she again eliminated those that were also expressed in the human neurons, or human cortical plate, which brought the number down to 263. These 263 genes come in two classes. 207 have an ortholog in the mouse genome, but the gene is not expressed in the mouse stem cells. And 56 have no ortholog in the mouse genome, but exist, of course, in the human genome. These were, for us, the more interesting ones. And now remember that we, had, we noticed by the approach of our uh, way of isolating these cells that 10% of the cells in the neuron fraction would actually be uh, the stem cells, the basal radial glia. So we introduced another filter and asked which of these 56 genes is at least tenfold more highly expressed in the stem cells than in the neurons. And amazingly, that reduced the number down to one. This one gene um, has this pattern of expression. It is highly expressed in the apical and basal radial glia, and this is the contamination, if you wish, of the BRGs in G1 in the neuron fraction. This gene is called RGAP11B, and as I said, it is specifically expressed in human but not mouse, apical and basal radial glia but not neurons. This gene is interesting for several reasons. One is... um, how it arose. Um, It arose, as was first shown by Ivan Eichler, who's actually here in the audience, um, as a product of a partial duplication of a ubiquitous gene called RGAP11A, which encodes a specific enzyme-like protein called a Rho-GTPAs-activating protein. But it has, in contrast to the mother gene, it does not have the gap domain in full, but it has a novel sequence here at the C-terminal end of 47 amino acids which are actually also specific to humans. Now this sequence comes about because 55 nucleotides shown here in purple which are present in 11A are actually not present in 11B and this leads to a reading frame shift and this new green protein sequence shown here. And the other reason why this gene is interesting is when it arose in evolution as was shown by Ivan Eichler, but also by my friend and colleague, Svante Pebo, who cannot be here today, unfortunately, it arose about five million years ago after the lineage that leads to the chimpanzee segregated from the lineage that leads to us. But before, the lineage that leads to the Neanderthals segregated from the lineage that leads to us. And as you know, Neanderthal brains were at least as big as ours. So we have here a gene that is expressed in the right stem cell at the right time of development, and that is only found in those hominids with 1.3 liter to 1.4 liter brains. So the obvious question was, would that gene increase brain size or increase neuron number in a model system, the mouse? And this is what Marta investigated by expressing the gene by a technique that we call in utero electroporation, And to make the long story short, what she found was that when you express this human-specific gene in the mouse-developing neocortex, it triples the number of mitotically active basal progenitors, so the progenitors implicated in neocortex expansion. So it increases these progenitors, but there are two ways how it can do that. Um, Either you make more of these progenitors from the apical radial glia, or you increase the proliferation of these basal progenitors once formed. And we solved this, or we studied this issue, and made use of a method that Elena Taverna developed. Elena, like Marta, is also from Milan, and you can believe me, these are such outstanding people that whenever I get an application from Milan, I accept it. (laughs) So what Elena developed was a technique where she microinjects in organotypic slices into the apical radial glia. So here you see the slice, and here you see the pipette, and basically she injects blind, but the pipette is filled with fluorescent dextran, and so you can identify the injected cell and very accurately trace what happens to the daughter cells and granddaughter cells of this cell after one cell cycle or two cell cycles. And what Elena could show, and I'll just summarize these data, is the following. She showed that when you stick in this human-specific gene, you would change the mode of division of the AIG cell to a style where it immediately gives rise to two basal progenitors. That is good, but it's also bad, unless these basal progenitors would keep on dividing. And that is, in fact, the second thing that RGAP11B does. Normally, in the mouse, one of these basal progenitors will make two neurons, but in the presence of 11B, it will now keep on proliferating. So this is what we found in the mouse. Um, Nereo Kalibic um, very recently expressed this human-specific gene not in the mouse, but in the ferret, a carnivore with a folded brain. And uh, when he does that, he found that also in the ferret, um, 11b massively increases the basal progenitors. But interestingly, it very dramatically increases the basal radial glia, which is not what happened in the mouse, But in the ferret, it it increases the relevant basal progenitor type. And importantly, these basal radial glial cells have markers that are very characteristic of the human state rather than the mouse state or the ferret state. So the other question we ask is whether 11b can induce folding of the mouse neocortex, which normally is an unfolded brain. So when we elect a parade, we have always a control side, which is smooth, as shown here. And then we can stick it in the gene, and we see where it is expressed by the green color. And when we look five days after sticking this human-specific gene into a developing mouse brain, we actually see that folds can arise in about half of the embryos that are expressing this gene. And here is another case um, uh, where you have the electroparated area, and you see these folds in the mouse-developing cortex, which are somewhat reminiscent of the folds that happen in a fetal human brain shown here. The Question is, how does 11B achieve these effects? Is it, like the gene from which it arose, 11A, a row gap question mark? And so a postdoc, fantastic postdoc from Japan, Takashi Namba, took on that question, made various constructs, the mother gene 11A, a full gap domain of 11A, a truncated gap domain of 11B, and a modern 11B form. And asked which of these exhibits row gap activity, and the answer is these upper two ones do, and these bottom ones, including 11B, do not. And we actually know that the ability of um, 11B to amplify basal progenitors is tightly linked to the existence of this new green human-specific sequence. The question then was, can the evolutionary increase in brain size um, in us be explained by RGAP11b? And there we have a problem. Because, as I said, Ivan Eichler and Smante showed that this gene arose about 5 million years ago, but 5 million years ago, our brains were small. The big increase in brain size happens later. But we now have at least an interesting um, possibility of explaining this um, enigma. And this has to do with the question how this loss of the 55 nucleotides that gives rise to the reading frame shift and the new sequence actually comes about. When we started this work, we thought that as the gene duplicated, it, these 55 nucleotides got lost at the level of the genomic DNA. But when we looked more closely, we actually noticed that the genomic DNA of 11b contains these 55 nucleotides. What's happening is something much more interesting. What you see here is in the top the sequence of 11A, and this is the splice donor site, the site where one coding sequence is moved and so spliced onto the next one. Now, in 11B, there is a point mutation, a C to a G, which creates a new splice donor site. And when this is taken, the 55 nucleotides here are removed, and that induces the shift in the reading frame because it truncates the coding region of exon 5, and um, when that spliced together to a messenger RNA, then you get a new protein sequence. So this human-specific sequence is caused by a single nucleotide splice mutation. This raised a very interesting explanation, or at least a possibility, and that is that RGAP11b arose as a, with a full GAP domain and having this activity 5 million years ago, and then later, but before the Neanderthals branched off from our lineage, later a point mutation takes place, which gives this protein a new function, or this gene a new function. So Marta investigated this possibility by creating what we call an ancestral RGAP11b. So it is a, a gene that is essentially, or a cDNA that is essentially identical to modern 11b, except that it doesn't have the G but the C. So it cannot make the green sequence, but makes this kind of a protein. And we then asked the question, will this ancestral 11B exhibit row gap activity? And so Takashi again made various constructs and tested their possible activity in an essay in which a decrease in phosphorylation is indicative of um, row gap activity. And as you can see, Um, The modern 11B does not exhibit row gap activity, but the ancestral 11B, like the 11A, exhibits row gap activity. Next question then was, would this um, RGAP 11B increase basal progenitors? And again, by in utero electroporation into mice, in contrast to the modern 11B, which increases basal progenitors, the ancestral 11B is unable to do so. So we have a rather interesting situation as follows. We have a single c to g base substitution, which creates a new splice donor site in 11B. That leads to the loss of the 55 nucleotides as the messenger RNA is made. That causes a reading frame shift that leads to a human specific carboxy-terminal sequence that is key for basal progenitor amplification, we believe. So, if RGAP11B should have contributed to the um, increase in the evolutionary increase in brain size in humans and Neanderthals, it would have done so by a single point mutation. And with that, I would just like to acknowledge my collaborators, Marta, who is now a postdoc in Boston with significant help from Mareike Albert, Takashi Namba, and Elena Taverna, and Nereo Kalevich, who did the ferret work that I briefly mentioned. This is Dresden at night, and uh, these are people in my lab I didn't have time to mention. These are people who have left the lab. This is the famous Zemper opera. I'm not over time yet, I notice. And we have the good fortune of collaborating with Svante Pebo, very beautiful collaboration with him. The fetal tissue is given to us by Robert Lachmann and Pauline Wimberger, and we have a lot of bioinformatic support from Michael Hiller, and these are present collaborators outside of Dresden and Leipzig. And this is the reconstructed church in Dresden, uh, and I don't mention this people's work on Prominent, but I would like to acknowledge our support by the Max Planck Society, the German Research Foundation, and the European Research Council. And with that, I thank you for your attention, and I'm curious which questions you will write down.
0: Uh, My job, at the beginning at least, is a little um, simplified because of the talks you've you've heard from uh, already, especially from uh, Rick and from uh, Veland. Uh, As you all are well aware, the human brain is the largest among uh, primates, living primates. Uh, But I just wanted to emphasize it's not the largest uh, mammal brain. Uh, Elephants and whales and cetaceans have larger and also more highly folded cerebral cortices. But uh, in terms of brain number in the cerebral cortex, neuron number, Uh, Humans have the largest uh, total number. And so my area of interest, similar to uh, Whelan's, is uh, one of the more obvious features of human brain is its size and the number of cells. And that brings us right to the issue of where they all come from, which has been, as you hear, a sort of an interesting problem or a central problem uh, for many of us. Uh, The developmental stages are clearly where we'll find the answer to how that happens. And in my lab, we've been uh, looking at human brain development uh, through the second trimester, trimester, which is when most cortical neurons are are developed. And a cross-section through the developing cortex... Uh, looks very different in humans than it does, for example, in mouse, which is the uh, animal system that most uh, neuroscientists have used to study early stages of brain development. So this is the cross-section of the mouse, and you heard from Velen very beautifully how there are apical progenitors, which we call radial glia, shown here in red, marked by SOX2, one of the transcription factors that they express. And their daughter cells are these intermediate progenitors that line up uh, right above them in the subventricular zone. And the beginning, the middle, and the end of neurogenesis in the mouse looks just like that. In the human, it starts out very similarly. There are radial glial cells and intermediate progenitors uh, forming these two layers. But then very rapidly, the subventricular zone undergoes this enormous expansion that you've heard about and becomes an outer subventricular zone shown here. And all of these colors represent cells that are cycling. They're producing daughter cells, And you may notice the ventricular zone at this stage becomes very small. And so the majority of cortical neurons at these stages almost certainly are coming from this zone, not from the ventricular zone. And moreover, this isn't the end of neurogenesis. This is halfway through gestation week 17 when the middle layers are being formed. So the middle and upper cortical layers are presumably being generated by the cells in this outer subventricular zone. But the actual nature of those progenitors really hadn't been studied uh, and so we looked at it in a variety of ways. Uh, first, I want to show you how dynamic this area is. In this case, we're looking at the outer subventricular zone in a slice culture where we've labeled just uh, the progenitor cells in green. So there are neurons that you don't see, but the progenitors are highly dynamic. And when we look at them more carefully, we find two classes, and one that I really want to emphasize is this one it's a radioglia like cell. Uh, it has this uh, process that goes up to the peel surface, which is the basal fiber, but it doesn't have an apical contact with the ventricle, the way the epithelial cells or the ventricular or apical radial glia do. Otherwise, it looks just like a radial glial cell. It stains with all the markers that you normally would see in radial glial cells, and if you backfill the surface of the cortex with a, a, a label like this, the DiI crystal, it fills the fibers of these cells that end in cell bodies in the outer subventricular zone. These cells hadn't been described at the time, and so we call them outer subventricular radioglia like cells, or ORG cells. And as you heard, uh, Veland calls them basal radioglia. They're the same cell type, and they're enriched, it turns out, in the human, uh, uh, developing brain. Now, we've looked at them dynamically, and we're struck by a behavior that hadn't, hadn't been seen before. These are four of the cells, uh, that are labeled in one, uh, slice of cortex. And as they divide, you may notice how they sort of jump and divide. And if you didn't notice it in those images, I hope you'll be able to see it in this single cell. Because as they go through M phase, the actual cytokinesis stage when they divide, they jump first and then undergo this cell division or cytokinesis. Very distinctive behavior that hadn't been described before. And so we called it mitotic somal translocation. MST. And it was one of the defining features of these cells because there were no specific markers that we could use to distinguish them from the traditional ventricular glia. But when we looked for them in other species, and this is in the mouse, we found them there as well. And if you watch this cell, it's a, what we call now a mouse outer radioglial cell. And you see it goes through a little jump, much more modest than the human cells. It has this basal fiber, and it's located in the subventricular zone if the mouse had a subventricular zone. So these cells are present in small numbers in the mouse and are usually expanded in, uh, in primates and especially in humans. Are they neurogenic? Do they actually make neurons? And to test that, we actually dissociated uh, cells from the progenitor zones, labeled them with um, a, a virus marker that actually just infected progenitors, and then put a single progenitor in each of multi-well plates. And here's an example of a single one of the progenitors in this well and a higher magnification view is there. And then we time-lapsed to image the behavior. And you can identify the outer radioglia glia by their first division. They put out a primary process, just like they would in C2, in, uh, in and then they jumped and divided, and that made that cell uh, classified as an outer radial glia. And we had other cells that rounded up and divided. Those were the intermediate progenitors. And we looked seven weeks later in culture at what the clones were like. What, what does a single outer radioglial glial cell actually produce, at least in vitro? And the answer was really surprising. The cell I just showed you, after seven weeks, had produced a clone of at least 700 cells, which included neurons of both deeper and upper cortical layers. And in this clone, there were no astrocytes. And some of the clones, were additionally astrocytes plus neurons. And, and this is an enormous output of, of cells. If we do the same experiment with a radial glial cell in a mouse, we get 20 to 40 cells after a month or so. So 700 to 1,000 cells from a single outer radial glial cell, I think, underscores how enormously uh, proliferative these cells are. And so it helps support uh, this model, which is still a work in progress, of what we think makes the human cortical development distinct, say, from the mouse. And in the ventricular and subventricular zones shown here, we think it be- cells in the human behave very much like the mouse, but what makes the human so distinct is the outer subventricular zone, which is filled with these outer radial glia that are born initially from the ventricular zone and move away And they go through these multiple self-renewing asymmetrical divisions, producing these daughters, shown here in green, which are transit amplifying uh, progenitor cells. And they actually divide symmetrically at least twice. We we know they do that more than once, producing clones of cells, which then have the same birth date and migrate, therefore, to the same cortical layer. And over time, uh, one of these ORG cells will produce multiple clones of cells in multiple different layers. And the radial fibers support neuronal migration, so that allows an increase in the cortical size tangentially as well as radially. So we think this cell is very important for cortical uh, expansion, both developmentally, as shown here, and also in in evolutionary terms. But as I said, we had no markers for these cells. We had no real idea of what made them distinct molecularly from uh, the ventricular radial glia, for example, in the mouse. And so what we took as an approach for this is single-cell RNA sequencing. So we dissociated early cells, shown here, took those individual cells and collected them in microliter, uh, uh, tiny little uh, uh, nano-sized capture sites in a chip, a microfluidic chip, which is made by Fluidine Corporation. And when they're captured in these little uh, sites, you can then do... uh, lysis and reverse transcription and amplify them, and then sequence the genes for each individual cell. And that's in an unbiased way. That is, we take all comers and see what, what those gene uh, differences look like. And here's an example of a heat map where we have the cells in all these rows and genes in columns, and you can see how they cluster according to the genes that they express. And that allows us to identify uh, molecular characteristics of specific, specific cell types. And just to look at some of the progenitors, and this is when we first did our initial study of about 300 cells that were captured this way, uh, we can see three different cell states. Uh, here in the lower left are the radioglial genes, the, the ones that are most enriched in radioglial cells. In the brackets are the intermediate progenitors, which are the daughters of the radioglia. And then here on the right in the upper uh, side are the enriched genes, mostly in young, immature neurons. And what this shows us is that some genes that are uh, initially expressed in the glia persist in their daughter cells, the intermediate progenitors, and genes that are expressed in those progenitors persist uh, as neurons are produced. And this is very useful in a way because it helps us watch the lineage of these cells. So example shown here actually uh, confirms what we saw from the time-lapse imaging. Radioglial cells shown here on the left producing intermediate progenitors that then generate neurons, and these are some of the genes, both known and, and new genes, expressed at each of these different stages. And we confirm the expression of the new genes, by in-situ hybridization shown here in slices. Genes that we predict would be expressed in radial glia are located here at the ventricle. The genes expressed in intermediate progenitors or uh, outer radial glia are expressed here, and then the neural neural genes are expressed in the cortical plate. Now, not only did this give us uh, an idea of uh, the transition or lineage of cell types, but it gave us insight into activated gene networks that might actually be signaling individual cell types. And to focus on the outer radial glia for this talk, uh, these are all uh, schematically shown genes that are coherent in networks expressed exclusively by outer radial at these early developmental stages. And one of those uh, gene networks and pathways is the LIFAR-STAT-3 signaling pathway, known to most stem cell biologists as an important self-renewal pathway. So we find that these outer radial glial cells are actually able to self-renew themselves and create their own niche. If we inhibit this pathway, as shown here in these graphs on the lower right, Uh, we significantly inhibit uh, the generation of the radioglial cells, but not the intermediate progenitors, or for that matter, the ventricular radioglia. So it's selective to this one cell type. And it helps support an idea, shown here, uh, that distinguishes the human from the mouse. In the mouse, as you know, uh, as we just heard, they have radioglial cells and intermediate progenitors, and the radioglial cells line the ventricle, where they can receive trophic factor signaling from the CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. In the outer subventricular zone, the cells have actually moved away from the ventricle, and they're not able to to access the growth factors in the CSF. But instead, they develop their own signaling pathways. They can produce their own growth factors, and they create their own niche for self-renewal and expansion. And we think that that is one of the reasons, of course, that these cells were able to undergo the kind of prolonged and and massive uh, proliferation that I've shown you and that, that Whelan mentioned just earlier. We've also gotten some insights into diseases, and I just want to mention two of them very quickly. One of them is, uh, is this, and as I've just mentioned, these outer glial cells make their own niche, and, and they have factors that pr- promote uh, self-renewal, and when we looked at all these genes in the literature, we found that they'd all been reported earlier, or already discovered, in this particular can- kind of uh, tumor, the glioblastoma multiforme, which is a terrible and inoperable uh, brain tumor found in adults, not, not in children. But when we look carefully at the published single-cell uh, heat maps like this one for radioglial genes, uh, or rather for, for genes that are expressed in tumors uh, as well as radioglia, we, we cross those reference points, we found that, in fact, that the most aggressive glioblastomas were enriched in the same genes that we found in the outer radioglial cells. They had apparently an outer radioglial cell signature in the most aggressive grade of glioblastoma. So then we looked in uh, surgical specimens that we got from our colleagues at UCSF, sectioned and stained and and cultured them just like we had uh, primary tissue. And shown here are glioblastoma cells from one of the uh, patients. And focus your attention on this cell um, as it uh, undergoes division. I hope you can see it. Yeah, there it is. Watch that one. Here we go. Right. So you may have noticed how it jumped and divided, exactly like the fetal cells do in, in C2. So it looks as though we have outer glial radioglial cells in these glioblastomas, and in fact uh, that work has progressed to the point where we now have uh, good evidence that these may be the, s- the s- uh, cells of origin for these very aggressive uh, glioblastoma tumors. Uh, the next slide, uh, which has to do with microcephaly, and microcephaly, of course, is a condition where the brain is uh, orders of magnitude smaller than it would normally be, um, and the most dramatic cases of this occurred in Brazil uh, Last summer, when there was an outbreak of Zika induced microcephaly. But initially, it wasn't clear that the Zika virus was producing the the microcephaly. Um, We were struck by the fact that uh, literature suggested there was one specific factor that mediated the entry of the Zika virus into the skin, and that was something called the AXL receptor. And our data set from the Outer radial glia, we've been talking about, in the other cells in the developing brain is shown here for all of the receptors known to mediate entry of flaviviruses. And the Zika virus uses the ones shown here with the black dots to get into other cell types. And I'll emphasize that the AXL receptor, which mediates Zika entry into other cells, is highly enriched, but only in certain cells in our data set. Shown here, it's enriched in astrocytes, in radioglial cells, not in intermediate progenitors, not in neurons. Not in interneurons, and also in microglia and endothelium. It has a very specific pattern of expression, which we predicted might be the tropism of the virus as well. That is, the virus would enter the cells that express that receptor. And so, we managed, in collaboration with Joe DeRisi, to get active virus from a patient who traveled to San Francisco from Brazil. And he was donating blood, and the blood actually turned out to have active virus. So we cultured the virus and exposed our tissue sections. And shown here in green is the, uh, the Zika virus reproducing in cells in the outer subventricular zone, uh, which included the outer radioglial cells that I've been talking about. It seems to me that they are a very favorite target of the Zika virus. So shown here, in fact, is the outer radioglial cell packed with the viral uh, particles just prior to rupture. So these outer subventricular zone cells are specifically and especially vulnerable to infection with the Zika virus. And when these patients are born with microcephaly, it makes sense, of course, that the neural progenitor cells might be selectively affected. And there's much more that goes on in this devastating condition than just infection of these outer radial glia, but this seems to be part of the the picture. And we also took advantage of the fact that uh, AXL, we hypothesized, was uh, mediating entry of the virus to block it with a variety of different chemicals and antibodies. And shown here is an example of a chemical block of, of the AXL receptor. And these are uh, cultured human cells that are exposed to the virus, and the green dots are the cells that are actually infected with the virus. And if you block the AXL receptor, as shown here on the right, you can significantly reduce the cells uh, that get infected, uh, confirming that the AXL receptor is probably mediating entry into these, at least these human cell types. Now, I was very interested, as I mentioned earlier, to find markers or genes uniquely expressed in these outer radioglia glia that we could use as a tool to try to f- learn more about the cell types. And we were very gratified in our first 300 cells that we were able to do that. Shown on the left are uh, novel markers that express themselves only in the ventricular radial glia, shown here. And on the right are, the more interesting to me, uh, novel gene markers that uh, are expressed in outer radial glia only. And we justified, or rather, we've, we validated these markers uh, first by showing that they, they stained cells with the morphology and location of outer radioglia, but also dynamically we watched cells in our time lapse imaging jump and divide, and then we fixed them and stained them with these markers to confirm that the cells that were jumping were in fact expressing uh, these outer radioglial markers, and they were. So this gives us now a whole new set of tools to start looking at these outer radioglial cells. One of the first things we noticed uh, challenges, or I should say modifies, this classic model of human cortical or primate cortical development that Pasco Rikic proposed, known as the radial unit hypothesis. Uh, Very influential and and still very, very uh, uh, concise explanation of how radial units form and how they multiply uh, over time and also uh, of evolution. And I want to emphasize the radial glial scaffold here, which are all these fibers that go from radial glia down here to the cortex, along which neurons migrate. And the model proposed that this uh, scaffold persists throughout cortical development. And we were struck, when we had new markers, as I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, that there seems to be a discontinuation of the radioglial fibers at later stages. And that was uh, evident from these two cell uh, markers. In red, I'm showing you uh, HopX, which is a gene expressed throughout this uh, outer radioglial cell cytoplasm. And you can see red fibers that you can trace all the way up to the peel surface. In green is Crya B, which is a marker that our data suggested was only in ventricular radial glia, and the green fibers only went uh, up to the outer subventricular zone and never went further at these later stages, suggesting that these fibers and these fibers were discontinuous. And we checked that in a different way by using DII, which is a, a lipophilic dye that can, be tra- that can be transported along radial fibers, And if we put those crystals on the top or the bottom of the slice, either way, we were able to show these continuous fibers at ages up to around gestational week 16. But beyond that, the picture was quite different. If we put DI at the surface, it backfilled fibers only to the outer subventricular zone where they ended in aderated glial cells. And if we put the DI at the ventricle, it only uh, went generally as far as the same outer subventricular zone, suggesting a kind of a, uh, a handoff of cells from one zone to the other. And that led to this model, which is a uh, model that suggests that the second half of neurogenesis, the upper cortical layers, are produced by outer radial glia, not by these ventricular radial glia, which now have transformed into truncated radial glia. So we think there are three kinds of radial glia in human cortical development. And uh, we've now expanded our single cell analysis to all these different cell types. Uh, It's given us an idea not only of uh, the diversity of cell types that are produced in the human brain compared to the mouse... Uh, but we've also identified uh, uh, unique markers uh, for each of these different cell types at different stages of development in different brain regions. And um, one of them I want to mention is DAB1, which is a relin effector. Uh, It's found in radioglia at the ventricle and the outer radioglia, but not in the uh, truncated radioglia, which would be here. And what's interesting is that these two cells have fibers that go all the way up to the pia where they can receive relin signaling, and the TRGs don't. So it very nicely justifies or validates the discontinuous uh, glial scaffold model that I showed you earlier. Um, And then I just wanted to summarize the points that I've made so far, that the developmental evolution of these three neural stem cell types, the ventricular, outer, and uh, truncated radial glia, we think, uh, help understand the expansion and organization of cerebral cortex that these outer glial cells are enriched in self-renewal and proliferation genes, um, and that has led to some uh, disease-associated effects, and that the mechanism for human developmental and evolutionary brain expansion could be co-opted in uh, disorders like brain tumors and could be targeted in disorders such as microcephaly. And finally, I want to thank all the people who did the work, uh, especially Aparna, Alex, and Tom, very gifted postdocs. Alex and Tom are setting up their own labs now at UCSF and are sponsoring organizations. Thank you for your attention.